So Ephesians 3, verses 14 through to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now I'd like to begin this morning by telling you the story of an orphan, for argument's sake, and so I don't offend anyone, we'll call him Dave. His picture's going to appear behind me in a minute, hopefully. Now, Dave had lived a life fending for himself. I know he looks a lot like Oliver Twist, but he's called Dave. <laughs> he was alone, he was cold, and he was always hungry. Life for Dave was bleak. But out of the blue, Dave was adopted by a wonderful family. He's no longer alone. In fact, he's welcomed into this fantastic family, which is not only kind, but also generous and wealthy. Dave's overwhelmed by their generosity. He's completely blown away by it, and his life is changed by it. His life of being cold and hungry is over. In his new home, Dave would often be found in his bedroom. I know it looks like he's living in the Victorian ages, but he's a child of today. Living, he'd be in his bedroom looking up online menus of restaurants, which he'd always longed to try. So he'd go and look through these menus and he would look through them and he'd really enjoy reading through them and thinking about the wonderful food that he was going to eat. But here's the thing. When Dave actually went to the restaurants, he always found himself walking past the front door of the restaurant, round the back of the restaurant and into the bins at the back, where he'd start rummaging through trying to find scraps to eat. Dave never actually tasted the amazing food that he spent so much time reading about. Now, in case you hadn't guessed it, it's not actually a true story. But sadly, it does reflect what we as Christians so often do. The Lord calls us to taste and see that he is good. Not to be content with learning things about God or simply understanding parts of the Bible better. He calls us to have a relationship with him. In the same way that reading a menu and never going to a restaurant misses the whole point, trying to gain knowledge about God without it leading to a deeper relationship with God is futile. Now, Ephesians contains some of the richest and deepest truths about God that you will find. And the Apostle Paul wants you to understand them. But here's the thing. Understanding them alone is not enough. The famous Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, puts it like this. We can never know too much concerning the greatest doctrines of the faith. But if that knowledge does not lead to an ever deeper experience of the love of Christ, it is merely the knowledge that puffeth up. Knowledge is, of course, absolutely essential. Without knowledge, there can never be any growth. 
But knowledge in the truly Christian sense is never merely intellectual. This is because it is the knowledge of a person. The purpose of all doctrine, the value of all instruction is to bring us to the person of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel frustrated that you're not growing in the way you'd like to as a Christian? I know that I do. Well, perhaps that's because we are separating learning about God from actually enjoying a relationship with him. In this passage, Paul prays that we would not just know things about God, but that we would truly grasp the great love of Jesus. As we examine his prayer this morning, I want you to draw your attention to three things that he asked for. Firstly, we would be strengthened by God's power. Secondly, that Christ would dwell in our hearts. And thirdly, that we would know the four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look. Now, you'll notice that verse 14 begins for this reason. That means that what Paul is about to say is based upon what he's already said. He's pointing us back to the big theme of the letter to the Ephesians, of God uniting us to himself and to one another through the precious blood of Jesus. He's pointing us back to the central message of Christianity. So verse 14 could read, because of what God has done for us, I kneel before the Father and pray. Understanding the richness of the gospel leads Paul to pray. So let's look at what he prays. Firstly, he prays that we would be strengthened by God's power. It says that in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This first prayer request gives us an indication of how big a prayer it is that Paul's about to pray. What he's about to ask is so profound that we must be strengthened by the Holy Spirit before we can receive it. And Paul's not talking here about some physical strength. He's talking about a physical strength what he calls the strengthening of our inner being or inner person. Within every Christian, there is a war raging, a war between the person we used to be and the new person that God has rescued us to be. Now, in some places, the Bible calls this the old and the new person, or here Paul calls it the inner and the outer person. God rescued us so that we could be perfect. But until we die or Christ returns, we will not yet be perfect. We will be living as divided people. We've been given new life, but we're not yet rid of our old life and our old way of living. I see this in my own heart. My own heart is divided. I feel great joy when I reflect on the great things that we've read about in Ephesians chapters one and chapters two, about all the things that God has done for me. And yet I also feel this pulled towards simple habits which I know are wrong when we feel like we're losing this battle more than we're winning it the answer is not to try harder or to dig deeper it's to reflect on what God has already done for us who he is and then like Paul turn that prayer turn that into prayer asking God that would that God would strengthen our inner person through the Holy Spirit Secondly, Christ pray, uh, he, he prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts. Look at verse 17, where Paul continues, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
it's really important to acknowledge here that Paul is praying for Christians. And he's already told us that when a person becomes a Christian, they are united with Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1 and verse 13 makes it very clear that there is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. He says, when you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So if God already dwells in all Christians, why then is Paul asking that Christ would dwell in our hearts? Well, to answer that question, we must briefly consider what the Bible means when it talks about our heart. In modern language, we typically think of our heart as our emotions. The Bible takes this a lot further. It does include our emotions, but more than that, it encompasses our identity, our character, our desires, our personality, our deepest drives. The heart in the Bible is the ruling centre of the whole person, the spring of all our desires. For a Christian, Christ being in us through the Holy Spirit is a fact. But does he really dwell at the ruling centre of our lives? Is he the spring of all our desires? More than just knowing about him, do you allow him to set the agenda? Are your deepest desires rooted in who he is and what he has done? Does he truly dwell in your heart? Paul is praying that Christians would live with Christ at the very centre of all they do. Not just some optional extra on a Sunday morning, but that everything we do would be motivated by what Christ has already done for us, by who Christ is. Paul continues in verse 17, asking that we would be rooted and established in love. Because Christ is love, when he dwells in our hearts, he will, we will increasingly become love. Like him, we will love others more than we love ourselves. We will increasingly reflect his sacrificial love to other people. Now, on the one hand, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But we all know that real love is messy. Loving other people is costly. Putting other people's needs first can be exhausting. So how on earth are we supposed to do that? And why would we let someone else take up the ruling centre of our lives? Surely we'd be happier if we ruled ourselves. Well, we may well think that, but what if the person you're inviting to rule your heart loved you more than you loved yourself and knew better than you did what you really needed, truly needed. In verse 17 and 18, we get to the heart of Paul's prayer. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The beating heart of Paul's prayer for Christians is that we would know and grasp the incredible love of Christ. This is perhaps for me one of the most beautiful things about the Christian message. The greatest height we can climb as a Christian is not understanding some complicated doctrine. It's not our ability to handle the Bible well. It's not even our ability to obey the Bible. 
the most transforming, beautiful peak you can climb as a Christian is to truly know and experience the four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. We should strive to understand and obey the Bible. But real transformation in a Christian is driven not just by understanding, but experiencing and enjoying God's love. The heart of the Christian message is something true, is to find something truly beautiful and delight in it. That's why it's called good news. Now, this love is so lofty that Paul begins his prayer by asking we would be strengthened by God. Without God preparing us, his love would be too much for us to bear. He even says in the next verse, to know this love, that surpasses knowledge. This love is too great to intellectually grasp. We must, with God's help, endeavour to truly experience it, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's try and do that this morning. Let's ask God to show us the four-dimensional love of Jesus Christ. It is wide. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but sometimes when I consider all the people I know, I feel overwhelmed with the question, why are so few of them Christian? If this message is such good news, why are so few people interested? A few years ago, we lived in a masonette, which was overlooked by about 50 different flats. I remember going out there one evening after a particularly bad day when I was feeling particularly low and looking at all those windows and imagining all the people in all those flats and being overwhelmed at the thought that probably very few of them knew God. God's love felt really narrow. But at times like that, I need to remind myself, we need to remind ourselves that that's not how God's love is shown in Scripture. In the book of Revelation, we are shown a glimpse of heaven. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says, With your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation or in revelation 7 chapter 9 it says uh, chapter 7 verse 9 after this i looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count when we look around us in our daily lives god's love may seem narrow but if we were somehow able to zoom out both in space and in time we would see that great love reaching to every single corner of the globe. God's love is so wide that he is not content on only pouring it on a few people. He lavishes it upon a great multitude of people, a multitude that no one will be able to count. If, like me, you sometimes feel discouraged that God's love seems narrow, then take comfort that one day you will see the true breadth of God's love for his people. God's love is long. In the book of Jeremiah, God tells his people that he loved them with an everlasting love. Now that phrase somewhat rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? An everlasting love. But if you stop to think what that actually means, you see, God has always been. He has no beginning and neither does his love for his people. Long before the creation of the world, Christ loved his people. Before any part of the universe existed, God knew everything about me. 
He knew that I would rebel against him. He knew that I would run for him, but that didn't stop him loving me. He knew that his love could transform me into something beautiful. He loved me before the world began, not because of anything that I had done, not even because of any potential that might have been in me, but because he is good and he is love. And he loves to demonstrate the transforming power of his great love. And God's love not only has no beginning, it has no end. It is a love that never gives up. Despite how much we wriggle and protest, it is a love that never lets us go. Because it is a love that is not based on what we do, but on what he has done for us. It is a love that will never let us go. And ultimately, a love that will carry us into eternity. If Christ has set his affections upon you, that affection will remain there forever. His love is deep. Paul says this in his letter to the Philippians. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A measure of our love for others can really be seen in what we are willing to sacrifice for them. Jesus knew from eternity past what it would cost to love his people. He knew that to love them, he would have to rescue them. And to rescue them, he would have to die in their place. I know that many of us have heard this countless times before. But just stop and consider the maker of the heavens and the earth, the entire universe loves you enough to die for you. He loved you enough to give up what was rightfully his and come and die in your place. He faced a life of hardship, of rejection, of physical pain and of suffering. But all of this pales in insignificance to the moment where he bore the judgment that his people deserved. He bore the crushing weight of our sin. It was the depth of Christ's love that held him on the cross. He died so that those who would repent and believe in him would have life. If you're a Christian, he loved you enough to die in your place. And there was nothing in us to deserve that love. He died for us whilst we were still sinners and enemies of God. Only a love as deep as Jesus's could achieve so much for a people who deserve so little. His love is high. There's a temptation to think that the gospel stops there, that Christ died for the sins of his people so that they could be forgiven. But that is not where it ends. Christ victoriously rose from the dead. He loves his people so much that forgiveness alone was not enough. He lavished upon us what we don't deserve, glory and honour, and most of all, a place in his family. We weren't just saved from punishment. We were made children of God. My daughter wrote a story at school this week called How I Found My Name. It's written about our dog and from his perspective. It tells the journey of his journey from Poland to our house in Chessington. It finishes like this. The man picked me up and carried me into his house. 
This was my new home and I wish never to move again for this is the place I found my name. It's Boaz. The height of Christ's love means that one day Christ will pick us up and carry us to our forever home. Where we will not only receive a new name, but a new identity, we will finally realise that our identity is found in being the one who Christ loves. We will finally and fully find all our joy and all our satisfaction in knowing that we are loved by the creator of the universe. This reassures us that no matter how bad life might seem now, his glory is coming. And it is his joy to share that glory with us, to bring us into his perfect rest, a rest which will never end. Now, this love is overwhelming. It surpasses knowledge. It's beyond anything else we can know in this world. Knowing it and experiencing it is our greatest joy. But how do we set off on such a great venture? What can we actually do to better grasp the transforming power of God's love? Well, let's just finish by briefly considering three ways we can attempt to take hold of Christ's love. Firstly, and probably most obviously, we can pray this prayer to really grasp the great four dimensional love of Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit. So our first step should be asking him to help us. And what better way to do that than to pray Paul's prayer in this scripture? Later today, why not read this scripture for yourself and make it a prayer for yourself? Pray that God would strengthen you through the Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in your heart and that you would be grounded in love. And most of all, that you would know and experience the four dimensional love of Jesus. And then once you've prayed it for yourself, why not pray it for other Christians that you know as well? Pray that we would be transformed by the power of Christ's love. Secondly, meet with other Christians. Don't miss that line in verse 18. Together with all the Lord's holy people. Grasping God's love is not an individual pursuit. It's a team game. I know that people have hang-ups about organised religion. I get it. The church in recent history and in the longer past has done some awful things. This is not about organised religion. This is about meeting together as believers who are part of God's family to encourage one another, to share a message that you just will not hear anywhere else. The heart of the gospel is not about self-improvement or being a good person or following rules. It's about recognising that you are far more sinful than you ever thought, but that you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Now, many of you will know that C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories, and J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, were good friends. But perhaps less well known is their mutual friend, Charles Williams. They were a bit of a trio. But sadly, Charles died at the age of 58. Lewis admits in one of his books that although he was very upset when Charles died, he was secretly a little bit pleased that he, it meant he now got Tolkien all to himself, that he would enjoy that relationship more. But he discovered something that surprised him. It didn't actually enrich his relationship with Tolkien. It diminished it. That's because there were part of Tolkien's personality that only Charles was able to bring out. 
as a result, Lewis didn't know Tolkien better. He actually knew him less. The same is true of the way that Christians relate to God. Your experience and enjoyment of God will be enriched by sharing your life with other Christians. So if you want to better grasp the love of Christ, spend more time with God's people. And if there are some people you look at and you think you don't deserve the love of God, then remember, neither do you. So let's rejoice in the fact that neither of us deserve it, but that he delights to give it to us anyway. Despite our flaws, he loves us. So I'm going to strive to love you too. Thirdly and finally, let's rejoice in what we have. Don't forget that Paul is praying for Christians in the early church. Christians whose lives were probably far harder than ours. If I'd been praying for them, I'd probably have prayed for their physical protection from persecution and for the provision of their material needs. These things are important and God cares about them. But Paul grasped something which a lot of us are really quick to forget. Our spiritual needs are far more important than our physical ones. And although the Ephesians may have had, may not have had all the material things they wanted, he wants them to see past that and fix their eyes on all the ways that God has blessed them. To see the physical things will pass away, but the love and blessing of Christ will endure forever. If you want to in, in, learn to enjoy God's love more, then train your heart to be thankful for it. Recognise that we don't deserve it, but he gives it to us anyway. The more you thank him for it, the more you will see it and the more that you will enjoy it. Paul desperately wants us to grasp the love of Christ, because when we do, it changes everything. To truly know it brings an incredible peace, because to be loved with such a deep love, a love which is not based upon our performance, but upon who God is, and what he has done for us is liberating. To really know his love keeps us from looking for love and meaning in all the wrong places. And it brings us the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction that can ever be found. Now, how else can we respond to such a great love other than the last two verses of this wonderful chapter? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.